From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. I, I give up. I mean, I, I want to leave the radio. The government is closing in on me. Uh, they've already won. They, they've got these broadcasters in such a snit that they're hitting buttons on me. and Firing I'm Firing not- people. Like a lot of you, I switch back and forth between Howard Stern and Morning Edition every morning. The Howard Stern NPR crossover audience exists everywhere. Here in Chicago, it's 10,000 people a day. An equal number of men and women. Average age in their 40s. Good incomes. And in the last two weeks, as Congress has moved forward with bills raising FCC fines from tiny to a half million dollars each, Howard has been kicked off six stations owned by the conglomerate Clear Channel. And Howard has told his audience that because of the fines, he might be off the rest of his stations soon. And how you see all this really depends on how you frame the issue. Howard Stern frames it as a simple First Amendment issue. He's not going too far. The government's going too far. In the news media, this story has often been framed as a kind of wacky news. There goes that crazy Howard Stern running his mouth again, getting in trouble. Maybe there's some theoretical First Amendment issue here, but but this guy, in this guy's case, he definitely goes too far. He's crazy. I have to say, um, this seems like the least useful way to, to view this story. For, for one thing, it's just weirdly condescending. For some reason, lots of people get this strange, condescending tone when they talk about Howard Stern. And um, most important, it sidesteps the bigger issue, which is that, for better or worse, what we're witnessing here is a real sea change in how government is regulating radio and television making it much easier to revoke stations' licenses for indecency, fining the actual people on the air up to a half million dollars. You may like that. You may not like that. But let's acknowledge what it is and talk about it like adults. It'll change the environment, even for for what we do here on This American Life. One of our contributors, Sandra Tsinglo, maybe uh, some of you have uh, heard about this in the media already, has already been fired from the public radio station that used to run her comments every week under a so-called zero-tolerance policy. This is a big change. Though, um, fascinatingly, again, it all comes down to how you frame what the issue is. When I talked to the head of the congressional committee that's behind the fines, this is Fred Upton of Michigan, congressman, he framed the whole thing much differently. He downplayed all of this. He said it is much simpler, it is much smaller, And at its heart, it's completely uncontroversial, the way that he frames it. This is actually one of the arguments that got the new fines approved by the House overwhelmingly, 391 to 22. That argument is Congress isn't doing anything fancy or radical here. Congress is just bringing the FCC fines up to date with the times. That's it. The fines were peanuts. And in fact, in some of the hearings that we held, we learned that and the Justice Department has actually balked at collecting the fines because it's often cost more to them to saddle up their attorneys and to go file that claim in federal court than they're going to recoup in uh, the payment of that fine. The activist groups fighting for the fines say that what all this is about is kids, protecting kids. Brent Bozell heads the Parents Television Council, one of those groups. A quick warning that... um. In this little snippet of tape, he and I discuss an adult sex act very, very briefly. So protect your kids. Mr. Bozell and I don't need a half-million-dollar fine each. If there's one thing that is upsetting, 
is the assault on the innocence of children. And, and what harm does it do? For example, one of the fines that Howard Stern is facing from the FCC is for talking about it referring to anal sex in his show. If a child were to hear him refer to that, what harm does that do specifically? Like, how do, how do you vision the, the, the harm of that? Well, because there is, first of all, there is right and there is wrong, two, concept, two concepts that are utterly alien to Howard Stern. Um, there is also the idea that a child, a young child, ought not to have messages of anal sex or any other kind of sex. They can't comprehend these notions. They can't understand these notions fully. Right, but if they don't understand it, then how does it actually hurt no, them? No, they don't understand it in its fullest. It's a simple proposition, my friend. These are adult messages being thrust to children. I think the people who disagree about all this are never going to see eye to eye. I kept asking Brent Bozell to explain this part of the whole issue that I've never understood, which is, what was the big deal about Janet Jackson's breast? What harm did it do anybody, young or old, to see that for a moment? He said that um, kids would imitate it in school. That was the harm. So of course, if that were true, why haven't we seen a rash of playground shirt tear-off offenses, you know? And... In a sense, it, it doesn't really do any good to talk about this stuff because you just go around and around and around. And on this issue and on most issues, we're never going to have a meeting of the minds because we don't even agree what the issue is. Is it First Amendment rights or is it children's innocence? Is, is gay marriage a question of the Bible or of equal rights under the Constitution? Iraq, the deficit, in the end, because we don't agree on what the issue is, the facts don't matter. But today on our program, we have two stories about this of people in a situation where the facts don't matter. Act 1 is about something that happened during World War II, where the government covered some things up and the facts only came out much later. Act 2 happens right now, during the presidential primaries. Stay with us. Act 1, straight eyes on the queer end, guys. Three weeks ago in Washington... Military officials announced that two men with ties to al-Qaeda, one suspected of smuggling weapons, the other of spreading propaganda, will be tried outside U.S. civil courts in military tribunals. And if you've been paying attention to the debate over these tribunals, you may have heard reference to a Supreme Court case, which the administration uses as the legal precedent for their existence. It's called the Quirin case. The original Quirin decision involved eight Nazi saboteurs who snuck ashore on Long Island in Florida back in 1942. With Quirin the Supreme Court changed what had been the law until that time. The Supreme Court said that it was now okay to try enemies captured on U.S. soil in military courts, not civilian courts. But a look back at the facts of the original case reveals a rather more complicated story, part spy thriller, part farce. When you look at the facts of the story, it's not only unclear whether they support the policies of our current administration, but whether they even supported the original decision. Chris Neary reports. What the Quirin decision has come to stand for, and what actually happened in the case, have grown so far apart, it's probably best to start with the facts. Here's what everyone agrees on. On June 13, 1942, on a beach in Amagasset, Long Island, four men, dressed in Nazi uniforms, rode ashore with a huge cache of weapons. By sheer chance, they were stumbled upon by a 21-year-old Coast Guardsman named John Cullen. Cullen, who's still alive and living in Virginia, declined to be interviewed on the radio. 
But he did talk with Michael Dobbs, a reporter for the Washington Post, who's written a book about the case called Saboteurs, the Nazi Raid on America. Dobbs says Colin remembers the night vividly. It was a very foggy night, uh, the night of June 13th, 1942. He uh, walked, uh, I guess, about uh, half a mile along the beach when he saw two men pulling a little rubber dinghy in from the in from the sea, uh, which was very unusual because there was a blackout. People shouldn't have been out that late at night. He went up to one of the men, asked him what he was doing. The man said he was uh, fishing. The man had a strong German accent. So Cullen immediately started to getting suspicious. The men were also drenched. So Cullen suggested they come back to the Coast Guard station with them. And the man refused. And that's when Cullen's suspicions really, when he, when he really started getting suspicious of what was happening. Cullen would have had to have been pretty suspicious to fully imagine the situation he found himself in. The men he found on the beach had come from a German U-boat still 200 yards offshore and stuck on a sandbar. For the last two months, they'd been trained in the art of espionage at a secret camp disguised as a farm in the German countryside. In their pockets were sea-soaked lists of key factories and bridges along the eastern seaboard. If they successfully completed their mission, the aluminum industry, vital to making things like tanks and planes, would be crippled. There were eight men altogether, four that night on Long Island, and four still on another U-boat preparing to land off the coast of Florida. And though they were all foreign spies, they were all very familiar with the United States. Most of them had left Germany in the 20s and come to America looking for jobs. But when jobs dried up in the Depression, they'd return to Germany, leaving behind wives, girlfriends, and family. Many of them had... Uh personal problems that they wanted to resolve. For example, the leader of the Florida group, Eddie Curling, who was probably the most fanatic Nazi of all eight saboteurs. He had not only a wife in the United States, but he also had a mistress. So when he got back to New York, he uh, quickly set up meetings uh, with his mistress in Central Park, and he was about to meet his wife the day he was uh, arrested. So even in his case, uh, he had mixed motives for coming back for any of them, was sabotage their first motivation when, when they came over? I think that many of them simply wanted to get back to America. We know this about how committed they were to their mission. That night on the beach in 1942, though they were under orders to kill anyone they encountered, instead, George Dash, the leader of the group, handed the young Coast Guardsman $300 and told him to get lost, while the rest stood by and did nothing. Then, before authorities arrived, the Germans had time to dig a hole hide their explosives, and walk to a commuter train station, where they hopped a train to New York, but not to commit sabotage. They had spent the last uh, few months, in some cases uh, several years, in Nazi Germany, where there was nothing to buy in the stores. They had uh, $100,000 in their pockets, uh, which is uh, the equivalent of over a million dollars today. So when they got back to the United States... Uh, the first thing that uh, came to their minds was to go on a shopping spree. And uh, the first thing they did was to head for Macy's. They also, Dash loved a place called Horn and Harditz. I guess Horn and Harditz was uh, the McDonald's of the time. It was the sort of the largest fast food operation in the world at the time. It was an automat, so you put in your nickel and you got out a cup of coffee or a piece of pie or a sandwich from a from a, a bank of uh, 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 dispensers. Uh, and 
he loved to go to that place. They had many assignations at uh, the Horn and Hardits. They also visited a lot of uh, movie houses. And in Dash's case, he had been a waiter, uh, and he spent some time with his old waiter buddies at uh, a, cl- a waiter's club in New York. Dash spent two days and nights playing cards to calm his nerves while he hatched a plan. He was deciding how to give himself up. During training sessions in Germany, he thought he might have detected that another man on the mission, Peter Berger, shared his feelings about defecting. One night, while the two saboteurs were having dinner in a posh New York restaurant with the money they were supposed to be using for the mission, Dash decided to risk revealing his intentions to Berger. There's something I need to tell you, Dash said. I know what you're going to tell me, Berger answered, and I'm quite sure our intentions are very similar. In choosing eight spies for its first espionage team, Germany managed to select not one, but two, who wanted to defect. They struck a deal. Berger would occupy the other men on the mission, while Dash figured out the best way to give them up. And you might think Dash had the easier of the two jobs, but he soon found out that even when you're a spy trying to give yourself up, the FBI is not an accommodating organization. On June 14th, just a day after landing, Dash called the FBI office in New York, saying he had statements of military and political importance to make. Immediately, he was transferred to something called the Nutter's Desk and forgotten. Undeterred, Dash got on a train and traveled to Washington, determined to turn himself in directly to FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover. But in Washington, this Nazi traitor, who really did have statements of military and political importance to make, was only slightly more successful. He first called the, uh, the FBI headquarters and wanted to talk with Mr. Hoover. <laughs> Here's Dwayne Trainer, now a dapper 94-year-old, living in a retirement home in Springfield, Illinois, but at the time, a 35-year-old special agent at FBI headquarters when Dash tried to turn himself in. The efficient secretary says, what do you want to talk about? It has to do something to do with sabotage. Well, that's in Mr. Ladd's uh, department. The efficient secretary there wanted to know what he wanted to talk about. It was sabotage. The call was referred to to Mr. Russell Kramer. The same thing went on. What do you want to talk about? Sabotage. They said, well, that's Mr. Trainer's section, and they referred the telephone call to me. Dash told Trainer everything, that the other sub had already landed in Florida, that the two teams were supposed to rendezvous in Chicago, and that they planned to target U.S. aluminum factories. But Dash didn't confine himself to just the mission. He was a talker. A team of six secretaries took turns, transcribing Dash's rambling testimony. Trainer ended up staying with Dash overnight in a hotel to get everything. He came away with 240 pages of information about, among other things, the state of Nazi Germany, Dash's service in the U.S. Army, and a laundry list of his remarkable personal ambitions. The only thing Dash didn't claim expertise in, in fact, was the thing he'd been sent to do, spy. For example, he'd paid so little attention to his mission that he couldn't remember the name of one of the men he was supposed to be in charge of. Dash had a little trouble with the name of one of the individuals. He couldn't remember at first, except it was to say T-T-T-T-something. So I took out a Washington telephone book and started reading the names of all the people whose names started with T. And he finally kept going down the list. Finally, I got to the name Theo, and he said, that's it. Werner Thiel. <laughs> and for a trained spy, well, 
He was no James Bond. I said, um, is there any way you can get in touch with the leader of the other group? And he said, well, he said, yes, I, I had him write the name of somebody on a, on a handkerchief, and he wrote, picked the handkerchief out of his pocket, and his, the name of this individual and his address is written in secret ink on this handkerchief. And uh, I uh, said to him, well, how do you develop it? And he said, I can't remember. It was some smelly stuff. Crack scientists back at the FBI lab determined what that mysterious smelly stuff was. Household ammonia. George Dash is one of the great enigmas of this story. Not because he didn't talk about his reasons for doing things. He did. A lot. But because it's hard to believe him. He said that he hatched the plan to defect way back at the secret training camp in Germany. He said many times that when Hitler declared war on America, I declared war on Hitler. But grandiose statements like that made people suspect less pure motives, especially from a man who'd already betrayed one country. At the trial, the government argued that Dash didn't decide to defect until much later, and then only because he was scared. Whatever the case, he clearly didn't consider himself a Nazi saboteur. Again, writer Michael Dobbs. He thought that if he went to the FBI, turned himself in, they would welcome him with open arms and allow him to launch a propaganda campaign by radio against Hitler. So he imagined a starring role for himself. But J. Edgar Hoover had other ideas. On June 27, 1942, the New York Times headline read, FBI seizes eight saboteurs landed by U-boats here and in Florida, to blow up war plants. The article doesn't mention that the FBI was only able to crack the case because one of the saboteurs literally walked into their headquarters to confess. This is the first moment in this adventure where the official story diverges from the facts, and for decades, the two don't find their way back to each other. The FBI decided it would be, the case would be conducted in secret before a military commission. Lloyd Cutler's been a White House counsel for two presidents, helped ratify the SALT II Treaty, and negotiated with Iran during the hostage crisis. He's the kind of guy that when reporters ask to talk with him, his secretaries ask regarding which famous case. His first one came 60 years ago, when he was appointed to the legal team prosecuting the Nazi saboteurs. Of course, the decision to have a military commission was the president's decision <clears throat> under our military code of justice. And the reason it was all done in secret was because we had a dirty little secret of our own. And that was, although the FBI was trying to create the impression that it had itself penetrated the German saboteur school and the German army, uh, the fact uh, we're waiting on the beaches to catch these fellows, the fact is that the FBI knew nothing about it at all. So the trial was held in secret more uh, so that the, the FBI could create an image rather than for national security? Correct. And it was not just the FBI. It was President Roosevelt himself. <clears throat> because, remember, this is six months after Pearl Harbor. Half of our fleet had been destroyed. General MacArthur was being isolated on Bataan in the Philippines. And... This was the, the fact that these saboteurs fell into our laps was the first chance to show that the United States was doing something to defend itself. 
In fact, at one point, according to the Attorney General's memoir, he, his name was Francis Biddle. President Roosevelt said to him, Francis, you'd better not lose this case. It was clear from the beginning that President Roosevelt had every intention of trying and convicting these fellows before a military commission and then executing as many of them as he could. Roosevelt decided at the outset that, as he put it, they were as guilty as can be. He wanted them to be executed. A civilian court would not have returned death sentences against them. So he decided that it, the matter would have to be resolved by a military court. Writer Michael Dabbs. So the question for Roosevelt was not whether or not they should be put to death, but how they should die. And he had uh, discussions with his aides um, over whether they should be shot or whether they should be hung. Uh, there was a kind of bloodthirsty side to FDR. In fact, when he first heard about the arrests of the saboteurs, he told Francis Biddle, the attorney general, that that they should be taken around the country in cages and uh, displayed like sort of trophies. If anything, this wasn't quite harsh enough for the population at large. An article in Life magazine entitled, The Eight Nazi Spies Should Die, shows a picture of militiamen with rifles who'd volunteered their services as a firing squad. And it's at this moment of heightened national anxiety that the story of the saboteurs drifts still further away from the actual facts. Here's why. People thought they were calling for the blood of Nazi spies. But at least in one case, what they were getting was the blood of a 22-year-old American citizen. Hans Herbert Haupt, one of the eight saboteurs, had lived in the United States since he was a small boy, and more than anyone, seemed to stumble into this case through a series of unlucky accidents. The misadventures that brought him there began less than a year before the trial, when he was busy chasing girls on the north side of Chicago in his brand new Chevy, and was known as Herbie to his best friend Wolfgang Vergen. Herbie and I worked together in a place called Simpson Optical. He was uh, he was always ready to to, to have fun, to dance, or to, to spend money, especially spend money. He was he was he was a great guy. Wolfgang Vergen is eighty one years old today, and lives in San Pedro, California. And in a way, his life is a shadow life of what Haupt's might have been. Vergen is intimately involved in the story of how Herbie Haupt ended up on trial for sabotage. And if not for one amounted to one bad job interview, he could have been there on trial with him. It all started the summer of 1941, before Pearl Harbor, when America still hoped it might avoid a war. On a lark, the two friends took Wolf's 1934 Chevy and drove down to Mexico City. Wolf was 18. Herbie was 21. They had $180 between the two of them, and they spent their time in Mexico blowing through it. During one particularly expensive night of buying rounds for some dates, they ran out. They had to sell Wolf's car just to afford the trip back home. We had enough money to to go back on, on the train, but they wouldn't let us over the border because we, in those days, used to have to have a, a, a tourist card. And on the back of the tourist card, my tourist card, uh, which I, I didn't notice that, but it had a little stamp intro automobile in, in other words that i had entered an automobile and they wanted to, they wanted to, and of course they wanted to know what the car was and and, and uh, we said well it broke down they said well you have to go back and 
and, and, and bring it back or proof proof that you didn't sell it because they wanted the tax money. So we 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 just went back to Mexico uh, and uh, told that guy that we that we were living with that rented us a room, and he says, "Oh, that's no problem." He says I have my my friends uh, uh, who is a chief of the aduana in 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 Manzanillo, uh, and he'll he'll get you on a boat going to Los An- Los Angeles, and then you can hitchhike from there. And then we thought, oh, that was great. The two set out for the port city of Manzanillo, and two days later they went to sea, aboard a freighter Vergen says they thought was bound for California. It was called the Guineo Maru, and it was supposed to go from from Manzanillo to, to Los Angeles, and from there to Seattle, pick up some more scrap metal. But uh, about three days later, we... We talked to uh, the steward, and uh, he says, oh, we having trouble. Anyway, we, we got no answer at all. And, and two weeks later, we were in Yokohama. <laughs> so there they were in Japan, four months before Pearl Harbor. Later on, in trial transcripts, Herbie said he'd gotten on the freighter because he'd heard there was work in Japan. But when he and Wolf arrived, they couldn't find any. They went to the U.S. Embassy, but found no help there either. Broke and not sure where to turn, they finally got work on a German freighter they thought was headed for neutral Portugal. Just a couple of days after arriving in Japan, they found themselves once again on the high seas. What did you guys think of the United States at that time? What were your feelings towards it? Oh, home. Nothing but home. My parents were there. I had a brand new... I uh, I had a brand new drum set that my ba- my dad bought for me. Uh, we had a little neighborhood band, you know. We used to play for bar mitzvahs and and, and and things like that. It was it was our home. And 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 uh, how did how did Herbie feel about it about the U.S. Oh yeah, same thing. He was no Nazi. I mean, we 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 had no more interest in in, in politics than the, than the man in the moon. The boat sailed down the coast of Africa and around the Cape of Good Hope, and while it did, the home they had left behind slipped into war. During the time they were at sea, Prime Minister Tojo came to power. Pearl Harbor was bombed, and the U.S. sent fleets into the Pacific. On the day they hit dry land, more than three months after they'd first set sail. Germany formally declared war on the United States. And unfortunately, they hadn't landed in neutral Portugal, but in the German-occupied French port of Bordeaux. Not surprisingly, the two men were taken to be Americans and put in an internment camp. After a couple of days, though, interpreters came around and discovered that both Wolf and Herbie had been born in Germany and left for America as little kids. Herbie was sent to relatives in the German town of Stettin, Wolf to his grandparents in Konitzburg. That was funny too because uh, they couldn't speak English and I couldn't speak German. Uh, <laughs> the only thing, the only thing Emma, my mother ever said to me or I ever sa- said to her was "Machtutiutsu," close the door. Instatine, Herbie was contacted by a man named Walter Cappy. Cappy was the head of the espionage program that recruited the saboteurs and sent them to the U.S. 
a blustery man full of ideas. Cappy had also spent decades in America before the war, and had come back when Hitler came to power. In Herbie, he saw an affable young man, a perfect double agent. In the eager Cappy, Herbie saw a ticket back home. Herbie sent a letter to Wolf, explaining it all, and inviting him to Berlin, to a meeting in Cappy's office. And we we sat down, and and he uh, he uh, gave us this spiel. You know, we would be doing our thing for the fatherland and and that kind of stuff. But it seemed to me that he had a dislike for me right from the beginning. Maybe because I didn't immediately uh, 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 take to this to his his uh, his scheme here. And for some reason, we we just never even considered. Uh, me being part of it, but what? but Herbie was. After the meeting, the two went back to Stettin to talk things over. The last time I saw Herbie was in Stettin. Uh, uh, we were at, at his uh, his uncle's house. And we we had a little bit of wine and drink, and uh, uh, what Herbie told me was that when he found out that they were going to have this school and they were going to send send the, uh, the, the, the the saboteurs back to the United States. <laughs> he, he, he said, well, it's great. I, I, I can't wait to get back. And, and I, said, I said to him, Herbie, uh, now in those days, we grew up in Chicago, you got to remember that the G-men, the the uh, uh-huh. FBI, were, were were the big thing. You know, there was Dillinger. They gunned down Dillinger, and, and I said, Herbie, uh, you, you know, you you're not going to make it. You go back, and the G-men is going to get you, and 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 they'll put your ass in jail. And he said, No, no, no. I'm just gonna I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to disappear. Herbie thought he was he was putting one over on him and for some reason he was he was almost jovial and then then he just burst out crying there was no words there was just just sobs and I don't know what made him start bawling like that that's that, 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 that that's the thing that that, that, that bothers me t- today is is why would he all of a sudden you know was it the fear of of, of going into something that he had no intention of completing or was it the fear that 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 what i said said was probably true that he would be put in jail uh i don't know the only thing i can say to, is that I was embarrassed. That's all. Embarrassed? I am. I was embarrassed for him. Wolf went back to his grandmother's house, where within a week he was drafted into the German army and sent to the Russian front. He spent two years there, in slimy foxholes, in some of the bloodiest battles of World War II. Herbie got on the U-boat to America. There's still a question about how serious he and the other seven saboteurs were in their intention to commit sabotage. And people who study the case say that one of them was an ideologically committed Nazi. Three of the men, Herbie, Dash, and Berger, seem to have had no interest in the mission, 
and the rest are anyone's guess. They're described as a not very impressive bunch, in over their heads. Let's see here. All right. These are copies of the official stenographic transcript of the proceeding before the military commission to try persons charged with offenses against the law of war and the articles of war. In his office, Jonathan Mann flips through one of his many binders of trial transcripts. uh, Mann got interested in the Quarren case in the early 80s, the result, he says, of a history thesis gone awry. He spent years tracking down all the living participants in the case and these formerly secret trial transcripts. There are 18 binders in all, and reading through them, you get a sense for what the proceedings were like. They were held on the sixth floor of the Justice Department. No press was allowed. Photos from the time show the eight defendants in the double-breasted suits and two-toned shoes that they had bought on their shopping spree. And here's Eddie Curling, Neubauer, Quirin, Teal. They were defended by an army officer named Colonel Kenneth Royal. Colonel Royal didn't relish the idea of defending eight of his country's sworn enemies, but he took his job seriously. And right away, he realized that if he was after a fair trial for them, he was in the wrong place. In the transcripts, the very first argument he makes to the commission is the same argument that those assigned to defend the detainees at Guantanamo are making today, namely, that his client should be allowed access to civilian courts. Um, Colonel Royal uh, immediately stands up and, uh, uh, you know, he says, in deference to the commission and in order that we may not waive for our clients any rights which may belong to them, we desire to state that, in our opinion, the order of the President of the United States creating this court is invalid and unconstitutional. Lloyd Cutler, who is a lawyer with the prosecution, says Royal's arguments fell on deaf ears, which isn't surprising, considering who his audience was. The judges were seven major generals of whom only one was a lawyer. And <clears throat> Attorney General Biddle asked the first question of one of the defendants, because all of them took the stand. Colonel Royal, who was assigned to defend those people, stood up and objected that no proper foundation for the question had been laid. He was perfectly right, but under the military procedure, the court adjourned to decide how to deal with the motion and they stayed out for 45 minutes, which was just about long enough to smoke a good cigar. They came back in and they denied the motion. The next moment, the Attorney General asked a second question. Colonel Royal objected a second time. The same thing happened. Another 45-minute adjournment. The judges, the generals came back, motion denied, and as a result, Royal never asked another, made another objection. But if the defense could read the writing on the wall, the men they were defending had a harder time. The gulf between the facts as they understood them and the story that was being told about them was so huge that while the entire country was calling for them to be executed, they were thinking about their future. Again, writer Michael Dabbs. They didn't really understand the extent of the trouble that they were in. After all, they hadn't actually carried out any sabotage against the United States. And at one point, Herbie Haupt said in the trial that uh, the prosecutor asked him uh, whether... uh, He said that he had intended to uh, turn everybody in himself, 
And the FBI said, oh, uh, what would you do then? And he said, well, then I intended to go off on my honeymoon with uh, my old girlfriend fr uh, from Chicago, who he had in the meantime proposed to. And that uh, the prosecutor was incredulous and said, how, how can you think you'd go off on a honeymoon when uh, you've just admitted to being part of a sabotage mission against the U.S.? And he said, well, if I turned everybody in, I wouldn't, there'd be no reason f to be guilty of anything, so I could go off on my honeymoon. Um, and I think that reflects the kind of naive attitude that he had to, to, to this mission. He thought that if he cooperated with the FBI, then perhaps they'd hold him for a little bit, but then they'd let him go. On July 27th, after making his final arguments before the commission, Colonel Royal sent an appeal to the Supreme Court. That appeal would become the Quarren case. In it, Royal argued that all legal precedent suggested that the saboteurs should be tried in civilian courts. Under intense pressure from the administration, the Supreme Court took the highly unusual step of meeting out of session. Three days after hearing arguments, blinding speed for a Supreme Court, the justices refused Royal's appeal but they did so in an even more unusual manner. They offered their decision without any supporting opinions, saying, in effect, it's fine for now. You don't have to free them. We'll explain our reasons soon. But nine days later, long before the opinions could possibly be issued, Roosevelt pronounced the sentences. Dash and Berger were given long jail time. The other six, including Herbie Haupt, were executed in the electric chair. At the time, most people had no problem with that. And even today, Lloyd Cutler, who was one of the prosecutors, and Dwayne Trainer, the FBI agent, say it was the right decision. It was wartime. All six of them that got executed, fine, you feel sorry for them. They really didn't want to do it, but uh, they're, they're allegedly trying to hurt the United States. But, but the... They were uh, they were allegedly trying to do this, but but you knew that that at least six out of the eight of them really had no intention of of doing anything. Well, it doesn't make any difference. You have to make an example of them. Why was it important to make an example of them? Oh, you you had to. You know, you're in war. A lot of people in war get. Uh, killed for no other reason that they're against you. You know, there's people over there in Iraq are getting killed all the time. And, uh, it's, it's war. You have to look at them as enemies. And as enemies, you have to deal them that way. The Quarren case authorized this notion of wartime justice that in times of war, we don't have the luxury of normal procedures and civil liberties. But it didn't take till the end of the war for the Supreme Court justices, who made the Quarren decision, to start regretting it. Justice Stone had second thoughts the day he sat down to write the opinion for the court in 1942. It is clear that four of the nine justices, uh, after the fact, uh, believed they had made a mistake and pretty quickly came to the conclusion that they'd been... Uh, uh, buffaloed into this and regretted what they had done. Michael Greenberger, a law professor at the University of Maryland and head of the school's Center for Health and Homeland Security, has studied the Quarant case. 
Justice Black in memos uh, uh, to other justices, for example, said that uh, he felt as if he were involved in a meat market slaughtering cattle and that it was a lesson to him that you could never decide a case by an order and then sit down uh, and write out what you, why you decided the case the way you did, that the writing itself uh, evinces issues that you don't think about when you're just deciding uh, thumbs up or thumbs down. Uh, so uh, there's every sign that if they had given themselves the time to think it through, the decision would have been different and they would have ruled that these people should have been tried in a civilian court. And this precedent wouldn't even exist. Because of the special history of the case, the fact that it was written in haste in the early dark hours of World War II, the fact that several justices regretted the decision, Quarren was a footnote for 60 years. If anything, Quarren was a cautionary tale about the extremes courts go to in wartime, like the Korematsu case which allowed the internment of Japanese Americans. It wasn't used as a precedent. But after September 11th, the Bush administration started citing the case, saying that again we're a nation at war, and that enemies captured on U.S. soil should be tried in military courts. Greenberger says he understands the impulse to hold military trials, but says the danger of reviving the Quarren case like this is that we'll end up with show trials, just like the saboteurs got. When you use a process that does not really help you get to the truth, uh, you can easily commit injustices. Had these people been tried in a civilian court, the lack of threat these people posed to the United States would have been clear. And to the extent ex parte queer and is being used today to... Uh, say that people are guilty without giving them some kind of process, uh, we, are, we are falling into the same pattern. This April, the Supreme Court will take up the case of Jose Padilla, a U.S. citizen seized and held without charges for two years, and it'll decide by summer whether Quirin justifies that kind of treatment today. The verdict in the sabotage trial will be back in court again. Chris Neary. Coming up, we sit the pollsters down and we ask the questions. That's in a minute. From Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International, when our program continues. American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, the facts don't matter. We have arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, mush polling. Whenever poll results have shown up in the news these last few months, I've thought about this story that one of our producers tells. She was a reporter at the Baltimore Sun, and the newspaper commissioned polls on elections that were coming up. And it was our producer, Sarah Canning's job to call up the people who had already been polled by this fancy polling organization and ask them to shed some light on why they had chosen the particular candidates they had chosen to put some quotes into a story about the poll. 
And Sarah says that the problem was so many of the people who she called didn't really know much about the candidates who they had chosen. They didn't know what they stood for, or they had it wrong what they stood for. They'd say things like, oh, wait, is he the tall one? The poll presented their opinions as as hard fact, but really their opinions were a kind of um, vague cloud of feelings, wispy and um, malleable still. And poll numbers, especially during elections, are a huge, big deal. They dictate which candidate is going to get covered on the news, which dictates who's going to be able to raise campaign dollars. They have real-world consequences. So how wispy are they? How worrisome is this? Sarah went to find out. I called Zogby International, one of the country's main polling operations. It's run by John Zogby, who agreed to let me watch his callers conduct a tracking poll he was doing for Reuters and MSNBC of Wisconsin's presidential primary. Zogby's call center in Utica, New York, is on the third floor of an old General Electric factory. The rest of the million-square-foot building is basically empty, so the feeling is of this one buzzing cell inside a huge industrial carcass. The room is row after row of about 100 cubicles that each contain a computer, and that's it. No photos of kids or beanie babies on top of the machines. Supervisors walk up and down the aisles, making sure people are pronouncing words properly and sticking to the script. Uh, As a Protestant, dear, do you consider yourself to be a born-again Christian, an evangelical, or a fundamentalist? Born again? That's wonderful. I'll see you in heaven one day. (laughs) The Lord says, we'll know one another. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) Of course, some people have a much harder time sticking to the script than others. Which of the following best describes your status in life, dear? Are you married, single? Oh, I know you're mar- you were married. Are you a widow, dear? I'm very sorry. I'm a widow also. Trust me when I tell you my heart goes out to you. Yes, I, I do appreciate where widows are coming from. Do you or does anyone in your household keep a gun for like person? The Wisconsin poll was short, a handful of questions about the general and primary elections and how the person felt about the candidates. Very favorable, somewhat favorable, etc. Then there were a bunch of demographic questions. The whole thing took about seven minutes. The Zogby staff I talked to were surprisingly idealistic about how important polling was for democracy. Aileen, the born-again widow you just heard, calls each respondent a good American citizen at the end of the survey and has been known to salute her computer. Another caller told me answering a poll is more effective than voting because politicians actually listen to polls. Hello, good afternoon. My name is Bowden, and I'm calling from Zogby International. Today we're doing a poll of Wisconsin voters for Reuters MSNBC News. I watched Bowden Kwasowski, a farmer and DJ and MIT-trained physicist, make his calls for about an hour. I wanted to see how often people are undecided, vague, or simply uninformed, and end up in the results anyway. The first thing I discover is it's really hard to get someone to answer a poll. For Zogby's Wisconsin sample of 600 completed surveys, they had to call almost 10,000 telephone numbers. In an hour, Bowdoin reaches three people who are willing to stay on the phone to take the poll, which is average. And how likely are you to vote in the national elections? Very likely, somewhat likely, or not likely? Very likely. The very first voter I watch him get is a woman, age 41, union member, separated, college graduate, white, conservative, makes between 35 and 50,000 a year, and she turns out to be exactly what I'm looking for. And the Democrat candidates, the Democratic candidates for president in 2004 are Howard Dean, John Edwards, John Kerry, Dennis Kucinich, and Al Sharpton. If the primary were held today, for whom would you vote out of these Democrats? Okay. You sure you're not sure, or might you be leaning towards one? 
You're not sure at this point. Okay. He enters undecided into his computer, and a screen comes up with this question, which is basically the same question asked in a different way. And if you had to choose today, if you had to choose, which candidate would might you just be leaning towards? Dean, Edwards, Carey, Kucinich, or Sharpton? Just the slightest lean towards one of them, if you had to choose today. Dean, Edwards, Carey, Kucinich, or Sharpton? Dean, okay, thank you. And there you have it. She's officially a leaner. She'll now be counted as a Dean voter. In this particular poll, 7% of all the respondents were just like her, leaners who had to be prodded. There is an I don't know button. Bowden can push for almost every question on the poll, but he's not allowed to offer it to the respondent. He can only use it if they say they don't know. Everyone at Zogby seemed to truly care about getting an accurate poll, and none of them worried about whether they were pushing undecideds to choose. In fact, the only person in the building who had any problem with how the poll dealt with uncertainty was me. So I called someone outside the building. I described what I'd seen at Zogby to Daniel Yankelovich, a famous old-school pollster who started the New York Times Yankelovich poll in the 1970s. Now he's chairman of two organizations, Viewpoint Learning and Public Agenda. Yeah, you were observing something that's very familiar, which is on issues where people haven't made up their mind and where they haven't given uh, the matter a lot of thought, that uh, their uh, points of view are inconclusive, vague, mushy, volatile. They could change their mind in a minute or overnight. And when you see these nice crisp numbers on polls, uh, they can be very misleading because they seem to suggest a definiteness and precision that is not really the case. Yankelovich has spent a lot of his career studying exactly what I was worried about. He first noticed the problem in the 1970s and came up with a method of asking four questions on a poll that pinpointed exactly how strongly a person held his or her opinion. They were simple, like on a scale of one to six, where one means that the issue affects you personally very little, and six means that you really feel deeply involved in this issue, where would you place yourself? Then he rated the totals on a scale of firm to mushy. In published reports, the mushy answers would be indicated by an asterisk. His system was dubbed the Mushiness Index by Time Magazine, one of his clients at the time. And they were quite enthusiastic. And then they found when the reporters and writers uh, sat down to write the stories, they found it slowed them up. It slowed up the storytelling, and as a result, they just didn't use it. And it's one of the many clashes between uh, journalistic values and, uh, and, and, and polling values. Not only is there a simple fix to mushy polls that's almost universally ignored, Yankelovich says some topics just generate more mushiness by their nature. The newer and more complicated the issue, the mushier the polls, and the higher the likelihood that the results will cause problems. It's happened many times in recent history. I mean, for example, when the Clinton health care plan first uh, surfaced in the early 90s, polls uniformly showed a more than 70% acceptance and when we dug behind the numbers, people were so vague and the answers were so mushy, people were just sort of uttering a truism, yeah, that would be very nice. But if they had to go to any expense or sacrifice any quality 
or any other, give up anything else, they they weren't willing to do it. And we came to the conclusion that it was not a 70% level of support. The real level of support was somewhere between 30 and 40. Well, that's the difference between success and failure. That was, you know, the first uh, real setback uh, for the Clintons in early in, their, in, in his term. On some big issues like this, he says, it takes years, decades, for people to work out their opinions. Uh, you take, for example, the gay marriage issue. It's new, it's just come up, there are fierce advocates on both extremes, but the mass of the public is going to have the most mushy attitudes toward it. So the fact that it's so new, it's controversial, it's full of moral ambiguity, uh, you'd be crazy to trust poll results on a question of that sort. But we do. I mean, like every day you hear people say, well, the majority of Americans, you know, agree with the administration. There shouldn't be gay. 60% of it, you know, whatever the number is. Yeah, you hear it yeah. all the time. Like, Well, I mean, they're misleading. And as we do with the top and bottom of every hour, now here are your latest headlines. Senator John Kerry says he is fighting for every vote in Wisconsin, despite a commanding lead over his Democratic rivals. That's Zogby's poll aired on MSNBC the morning before Election Day. According to our MSNBC Reuters Zogby poll, Senator John Kerry is leading Howard Dean 47 to 23. Senator John Edwards is in a close third with 20 percent. Commanding lead is the same language John Zogby used in a press release to describe John Kerry's chances. His quote was used by the Associated Press in a story that ran in many newspapers, including the Boston Globe and the L.A. Times, the day before the Wisconsin primary. The problem was, Kerry ended up with a skimpy lead instead. He won, but only beat John Edwards by four percentage points, not 27. And Dean, instead of coming in second, as Zogby's poll showed, was a distant third. Zogby wasn't the only pollster who got it wrong. The day after the election, the power of incorrect polling was laid out like a textbook example. Edwards was on the front page of the New York Times, not because he'd beaten Kerry, but because he'd beaten the poll's predictions. Some people complained all this gave Edwards an artificial boost, which helped him raise $310,000 on the Internet the day after the election. And, they said, the faulty numbers made Kerry look like more of a loser than he really was. Newspaper stories talked of Kerry scratching out a victory and Edwards as a serious challenger in a sudden two-man race. I called Zogby to find out what happened. He was in L.A. and spoke to me from his cell phone. If he sounds a little defensive, it's because he was. Zogby is a controversial figure in polling circles. Some of his colleagues claim his methods aren't rigorous enough and that he hypes his results in order to market his company. On the other hand, his polls are accurate enough, often enough, that he has some major clients. Is this an example where the vagueness of those people's answers played out in a way that you just you couldn't anticipate what's going to happen? All right, it's an in, that's an interesting question. But look, all we are doing is taking a snapshot of a moment in time. I'm not... Polls should not be seen as being predictors, even though we try to do that. Polls need to be seen as uh, taking a temperature at a given point in time. And there is not a doubt in my mind that my poll was relatively accurate Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Zogby told me he had to stop Sunday afternoon because his client needed the numbers for Monday morning's Today Show. 
The problem was, after Zogby's callers stopped their work, Edwards was endorsed by Wisconsin's biggest newspaper and then did very well in a televised debate, and people changed their minds. Some pollsters I talked to said stuff like that happens all the time, and Zogby should have known better than to stop Sunday afternoon. Today show or no today show. I conducted a miniature poll of my own, just to see if something else could have affected the Wisconsin results. I got the phone numbers for Zogby's respondents and spoke to 15 of them. Most people said they voted for the person they told Zogby they would vote for, and some had well-thought-out reasons why. Two people said they never made it to the polls at all. And then there was Douglas Wills. Hello. Wills was listed as a Dean voter in the poll results. Well, they said if, you know, if I had to choose one of the uh, Democrat candidates, who would I vote for? Okay. And and what was your answer to that? Dean, I believe. Dean, okay. Did you, in fact, uh, end up voting for Dean? No, I voted for Bush. So in the poll, though, when you, they gave you the choice, you decided to pick one? Yes. Okay. How did you come up with Dean? Uh, I really don't know. I just picked one. I said uh, to whoever called me, um, I said, well, I didn't think that, uh, that I would vote for a Democrat. And they said, well, if you did vote for a Democrat, which one would you vote for? And they kind of forced me into making a choice. Harley Schmiden was also listed as a Dean voter and said he liked what Dean had done about health care in Vermont and did, in fact, vote for him. Here's why he chose Dean over John Kerry, because of a mistake I'm sure a lot of people make. I'm a World War II veteran. Uh-huh. Anyway, and Kerry was boasting about his Vietnam record, but what he didn't tell you was when he mowed down the women and children over there one time. He I did? I don't know if you're even familiar with that story. Oh, yeah. Wasn't that... Was he, shouldn't, he shouldn't boast about his war record. I thought the Kerry who got in trouble in Vietnam was um, Bob Kerry. As far as I know, it was John Kerry. No, I think, I, I'm pretty sure it's Bob Kerry, who's also a Democrat. Um, I, I said his brother? No, there's no relation. In fact, Kerry is spelled slightly differently. Um, that I'm mistaken, but that's what I thought. I thought it was John. Then there was Melanie Faith, who was watching TV when I called. She was counted as voting for Dennis Kucinich. Who is, I, I don't even know who he is. Oh, you don't? No, okay. I don't. Um, that's, yeah, what what the... Um, is he running for state? No, he is running for president. For, in the oh, Democratic no, no, party. no. I, w- I was not interested in, in him, no. Oh, you weren't? No, I wasn't. Did, did you end up voting in the primary? Yes, I did. And for whom did you vote? I'd rather keep that to myself. Okay, but, but it, it, it was not for Kucinich. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. Several other people I talked to reminded me of the Baltimore Sun poll respondents. Like this one woman who had an opinion, she voted for Kerry, but she really just couldn't say why. The thing she liked about Kerry was Kerry. Only about half the electorate turns out for presidential elections, and of those, one prominent pollster told me, only about 20% are paying close attention to the race. In primaries, the percentages are even smaller. That means that most of the time, what political pollsters end up measuring are those mushy feelings that lead to big, general conclusions about a candidate. The classic lesson on this was the presidential election in 1984. At the end of the campaign, a Gallup poll asked people a series of policy questions. Who do you agree with, Walter Mondale or Ronald Reagan? And most people said Mondale. Then they asked them who they planned to vote for. And most people said... Reagan. Sarah Koenig, 
Special thanks today to Neil Sonic, Richard Cahan, Eugene Fidel, Kasha Pycars, Jeff Barker, Keith Howler, Andrew Kohut, Melissa Brilliant, Jeff Seglin, and Carissa Craven. You know you can download audio of our program at audible.com slash thisamericanlife. They have public radio programs, best-selling books, even the New York Times, all at audible.com. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our show comes from the Kauffman Foundation of Kansas City, accelerating entrepreneurship across America on the web at kauffman.org. WBEZ Management Oversight by Mr. Tori Malatia, who says, The government is closing in on me. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life. PRI Public Radio International.